Microphone, am I on? Can you hear me in the speakers? Okay. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11 will be our scripture today. Matthew 11. We're dealing with an episode that is unique to the gospel of Matthew, although there is content that is found elsewhere in Matthew as well as in Luke. And so, similar to how we handled it in the last episode, we had a we had material that was unique to a gospel, but it had content that could be found elsewhere. And so that's part of the study you go through when you're harmonizing, particularly with the synoptic gospels. You can have unique events. Nevertheless, you can have content that's found elsewhere. And uh, we'll see that again here this morning. Uh, it says episode 20, that should be a 21 in the Galilean ministry, if you are following along in the Harmony of the Gospels. I have 21 on my paper. It just says 20 on the screen. Episode 21 in the Galilean ministry. Woes upon the privileged. Not my title, but we'll, we'll work with it. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each one of us is equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word and thankful for the opportunity we have to receive instruction. We, we submit ourselves to your teaching ministry this morning. Father, any time we come together for the word of God, it's, it's beyond our humanity and beyond our ability to apprehend. But Father, perhaps this morning more than ever, as we contemplate infinity, as we contemplate the infinite variations of the what-ifs, I pray, Father, that we might have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 11, Woes Upon the Privileged. Episode 21 in the Galilean Ministry. The material is found here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. A lot of times, uh, these, this paragraph is broken down into two sections. A uh, section from 20 through 24, and then a section on 25 through 30. Uh, we will handle it like that. We will handle it uh, as two parts, but I do like the way that the harmony we're following actually puts them into the same message because in many respects they are the same message. It may not appear to be that way at first. It may appear to be that in verses 20 through 24 he's talking about cities and he's rebuking them and he's bringing in these things. And then in verses 25 and following it seems to be a shift. It seems to be more where he's speaking on an individual basis where um, he's praising the Father and he's telling the people come in verse 28. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so those appear to be distinct messages, but they're really not. And uh, as we approach it, I think you will, uh, you will recognize that there are principles that are being given in verses 20 through 24 that are then being applied in the personal invitation uh, aspects of verses 25 through 30. And so if we do our homework well enough in verses 20 through 24, then it will fall into place in verses 25 through 30. And hopefully we'll have a better understanding of what it's all about in terms of what the Father's plan is, how the Father is, uh, is to be praised for the glory of His plan, and how the Father chooses to reveal things and hide things. And uh, through all of this, then, He is the one that is ultimately glorified. So there's a lot of work to do on this, and I anticipate that uh, 
I don't know how many sessions it will take to go through here, but I anticipate that it's going to be some time. Uh, we could approach this on just a superficial level and say, okay, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and, and uh, Capernaum, uh, they really blew it. And uh, they really blew it big time, and so uh, too bad for them. And then we just move on. Well, that's kind of missing the point of what these woe messages are all about. So we'll take some time to deal with them here this morning. Let's just read through, starting with verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will not, uh, you will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Okay? Now we'll go back and we'll get some more detail on this here momentarily. Um, even this section, verses 20 through 24, is really broken down into two parts because you have uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida on the one hand, the twin cities there, and, and they're parallel with Tyre and Sidon, twin Phoenician cities. And then you have Capernaum really as the preeminent city, uh, preeminent in privilege, because that was the city in which the Lord chose to establish his headquarters for the Galilean ministry or this phase of his earthly ministry to this point. And then Sodom, of course, stands out as preeminent. If you had to pick one city of evil in the Old Testament, one city of godlessness and destruction, um, you know, we often think of Sodom and Gomorrah as a pair or Sodom. There were really five cities there that were destroyed, but Sodom encapsulates all of that and Sodom stands as the pinnacle. And so lifting up Capernaum is one pinnacle, the corollary there being Sodom is the other pinnacle. And what Jesus Christ is doing is he's painting some very vivid pictures and drawing these, these metaphors out in a way that uh, really speaks volumes just in the, uh, in the decision that he used for the cities that he chose. All right, let's read the second part of this then, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Pay attention to that. This way, the means by which not only what the Father does, but how he does it is very important. And how he does it is a part of his glory just as much as what he does. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So coming to the Father is necessary to come to the Son first, and we'll go through a lot of that as well, not only here, but later on in the Gospel of John. Then the invitation to verse 28, Come to me, open invitation, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, so as you can tell, there's 11 verses and a lot of content that we're going to have to deal with in, uh, in each of these areas. First of all, 
We realize that, as the title says, these are messages of woe. And so we'll start with woe as the first point of our study. I've outlined this, and the outline may actually change in the next couple of weeks. But as of now, I've outlined these 11 verses in eight major points. And uh, there may be a ninth and tenth point at the end in the next couple of weeks, depending on if I decide to restructure the A, B, and C that I've got under point eight. But as it stands now, we're looking at eight major points in these 11 verses. And we're going to start with this issue of woe. Woe is not a good message. Woe is bad in any language. And this is what we start with here in this chapter. This is the first, but by no means the last time, that Jesus Christ will stand up and pronounce woe to an audience. Now, there's... uh, Aspects of communication, obviously the Word of God is profitable, and it's profitable for a lot of different forms of communication. It's profitable for reproof, it's profitable for rebuke, it's profitable for teaching, it's profitable for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And these different forms of communication have uh, varying levels of uh, pleasantness, shall we say. There are some messages that are not fun to receive, but they're necessary. They do edify, and the Word of God is designed to be administered in a variety of different ways, more so then perhaps than now, because of the role of the prophet under Old Testament revelation. When a prophetic, when a man in prophetic office, such as Moses or Samuel or Elijah or any of the prophets from the Old Testament, remember Jesus Christ was an Old Testament prophet, dispensationally speaking. Understanding that the church does not begin until Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So don't be confused by the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1 are contained in your New Testament. Okay? Does that bother you that you have this, uh, that you have this little title page right here in between Malachi and Matthew? Does that bother you? Okay? If, if, it, if you really have a hang up over it, go ahead and just rip this page out. Move it back in between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Maybe that will help you think a little bit in, in term, dispensational terms now. In terms of stewardship. Jesus Christ is an Old Testament prophet. He is in the office of prophet. He's a prophet, priest, and king, but he's not functioning yet in the kingly office. Not until second advent. Neither is he functioning in the priestly office. See, at this point of his ministry, he will function as a priest when he hangs on the cross. We'll deal with that in, in time. But up to this point, though, he's functioning in the prophetic office. He's uttering forth uh, prophecies which are not only predictive of the future, but are also authoritative for the present. Important that we recognize that as well. Now, the point, as you see, you've probably already written it down. I haven't said it yet. But point one, Jesus Christ pronounced messages of woe consistent with his prophetic office. Messages of woe consistent with his prophetic office. This is, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first we've seen to this point in the, in the, in the harmony, in the chronology of the harmony of the Gospels. There's a one previous to this. If you glance back to chapter 10 of Matthew, then there's an earlier one than this in Matthew chapter 10. And... Uh, and, but we, we count this as the first chronologically because of how we've synchronized the, uh, the accounts. In Matthew chapter 10, he's sending the uh, disciples out and 
<laughs> I'm not spotting it. I believe there's a woe message in chapter 10, but maybe I'm incorrect on that. What verse? Yeah, there's a similar message there with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah and the more tolerable. Anyway, I'll come back to this. This is a message of woe. Whether or not it's the first one chronologically, I believe it is. Jesus Christ pronounced it. Now, the vocabulary is not so exciting. Number 3759 is an interjection. All right. There's nothing really wild about that. But what is exciting is the the usage of this word in the Septuagint. In other words, we have a pattern for this from the Old Testament. And the pattern for this is the prophetic office. And that's what we're going to key in on here. So it's not necessarily a vocabulary study, but a concept when we realize that this is consistent with the message of the prophets. See, if uh, if somebody was to appear in dazzling white in uh, with brightness of light and says, do not be afraid. Who do you think that is? That's Gabriel. That's his tagline. That's Gabriel. When all of a sudden, when Gabriel appears in dazzling white light, the angelic appearance, that's his tagline is do not be afraid. He uses it with Zacharias, uses it with Daniel, uses it with, with the Virgin Mary. He uses it practically everywhere he goes. All right. Well, these messages of woe are taglines, so to speak. They're the messages of the prophets, which you see in a whole host of scriptures here. Now, the Greek is ui. Ui, number 3759, which is rather, all of these are what we call onomatopoetic. They, they sound like they are. In other words, if you're crying out, Ui, Ui, that's not good. Likewise with the Hebrew, there's two words in the Hebrew. There's hoi and oi. Hoi and oi. Oi has come down so far, now oi is stereotypical, right? You're watching a movie and there's some Jewish guy in there and he goes, oi. You know, it becomes stereotypical. Because they say it a lot. Well, there's a reason why they say it a lot. All right. There are two distinct terms. Hoy, number 1945, is more of the ah or the or the alas. Uh, and oi is more of the precise pronouncement of woe that was exercised by the Old Testament prophets. Uh, in the Septuagint, it's the same ui, it's the same Greek that is used for both hoy and oi. All right. Septuagint, we use ui for both hoi and oi. We're really going to focus in mainly on the ois this morning. Strong's number 188, because those are the messages of woe. And those are the messages that are consistent with the prophetic office. And so without really going into all of these, we can at least get a sense of it, starting with Numbers 21. We can get a sense of it that when woe is being pronounced, it's not good. We're going to glean really two things out of this survey. That when woe is being pronounced, it's not good. But also, when woe is being pronounced, it's not the first message they've ever gotten on this subject. They've had previous teaching, and they've ignored it. They knew what the right thing to do was, and they weren't doing it. And so because of that, the woe message comes as a discipline, as a rebuke, as a corrective measure to... Uh, to bring about this change, all right? Numbers twenty-one, nineteen, um, and that's a great way to start your day. Let's start with a uh, a wrong reference. Thought I had double-checked these. Is it verse twenty-nine? 
There it is. Woe to you, Omo. Am I right? Verse 29. In the context of this, uh, Israel sending messengers. Israel is looking to uh, pass through the territory. They don't want to conquer. They simply want to pass through so they can occupy the land that the Lord has promised to them. But uh, Sihon is not going to give them permission. And uh, there's struggle here with, uh, with Moab. Therefore, it says in verse 27, those who use Proverbs say, come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, the uh, dominant heights of the Arnon. All these geographical terms with respect to the Moabites. Verse 29, woe to you, O Moab, you are ruined, O people of Chemosh. Chemosh was their detestable deity, the god of Moab, the one that required child sacrifice. Uh, he has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon, but we have cast them down. Anyway, there's the message of woe, and it's a message of judgment. It's a message of destruction. Over in chapter 24... Rendered alas in verse 23. Then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? Again, in the judgment there for um, Amalek being described in that context. In First Samuel chapter 4, the prophet here is Samuel. Um, but we got the Philistines here stealing the ark. Worst mistake they've made in a while. They'll make bigger mistakes later on when they think their giant can whoop up on David, things like that. But here's a bad mistake, taking the ark. And uh, judgment that comes upon them because of that. The... Uh, Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp, Elohim has come into the camp, and they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, in verse 8, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Of course, that's their pagan perspective. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, and so forth. But this is their pagan approach and understanding of judgment upon them. Proverbs 23:29. Um, let's just look at the major prophets, though. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. That's why you see this string of references in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea. This was the ministry of the prophets. This is the bad news message that Isaiah has to deliver to, uh, with respect to Jerusalem and how they've gone negative to the Word of God and how they're in store for judgment. And uh, notice the city that is compared to. Verse 8 says, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. And then verse 9, the expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them. 
See, this demonstrates the final stages of degeneracy where uh, they don't even try or don't even attempt to hide their wrongdoing because in their norms and standards now, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're happy the way they're living. They're fine the way they are. And who's God to tell them otherwise? Kind of like our culture today. Verse 11, woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him for what he deserves will be done to him. One of the things we're going to observe is that when God administers ju- uh, judgment, it is, it is what we've deserved. It is consequences for our decisions. Uh, the neat part about walking in the light is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. He deals with us on a grace basis. And what we deserve is cast off to the side because Christ paid for it. What a delight. So if we're walking in the light and we're serving the Lord, then we don't get what we deserve. We get the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. But when we're falling under judgment, the consequences of what we deserve are what we observe many, many times as the application. We'll see that as well coming up when we talk about how it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment. Why is it that there are degrees of punishment in the lake of fire for all eternity? How can something be, how can hell be more tolerable? Well, that's not to say you can, it's tolerable at all, but it will be more tolerable than other people that have it worse in the lake of fire. Not to say that your day is going to be a picnic, but it's going to be more tolerable than what it could have been or what others will be facing. We'll teach that as well. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 5, chapter 24. Chapter 6 is where uh, Isaiah pronounces woe upon himself because he has no business viewing these things of holiness. And uh, he says, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah can't believe he's actually witnessing the holiness of God's throne there in Isaiah chapter 6. Chapter 24 and verse 16. From the ends of the earth we hear the songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. So notice that you got glory on the one hand, woe on the other. They're not really opposites, are they? It's a matter of perspective. If you're walking in the light, a child of God, and you belong in his presence because you're made righteous, it's a glory. But if you're carnal or unsaved or not walking in the light and so forth, it's a message of woe. It's the same God. It's the same presence. We embrace it. The wicked flee and tremble. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, chapter 4. There's a bunch of Jeremiah references, plus Lamentations belongs to him as well. Jeremiah 4, one of the deepest, most mysterious passages, not really dealt with in a lot of ways. Jeremiah 4.13, Behold, he goes up like clouds, and his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Yeah, when Jehovah Elohim mounts his battle chariots, um, you're on the losing end of, of that warfare. Verse 31 Um, and this whole context is remarkable. When you look at verse 23, you realize that this is a description of the Tohu Wabohu. Uh, the only place other than Genesis 1-2 where Tohu Wabohu occurs is here. The earth was formless and void. And Jeremiah gets the prophetic look at why it became formless and void. 
and uh, the judgment of God's wrath over the angelic world. But anyway, that's more we can get into this morning. But verse 31, I heard a cries of a woman in labor, the anguish of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hand, saying, uh, Oi, ah, woe is me, for I faint before murderers. All right, there's a bunch more in Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Let's grab the Ezekiel ones, Ezekiel 16. We're all old enough for Ezekiel 16. Um, it came about after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. And all of this description here of how he took this uh, this girl and uh, he married her and he built her up and he blessed her abundantly, but then she uh, then she played the harlot. And uh, everything here that's described with some pretty graphic detail of, uh, of her harlotries. So it came out after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built for yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. And it goes on and described in verse 25 her activities, pronouncement of woe. Likewise in chapter 24, same imagery, same message of woe. It's remarkable in chapter 24 because they had it backwards. In chapter 24, they thought they, they were the wonderful, they thought they were the choice meat. They thought they were doing great. And... Uh, the reality was they were slated for judgment that uh, God had delivered the remnant already and he delivered the remnant by taking them away to Babylon. So in chapter 24, we have it in verse 6 and in verse 9. All right, I'm just double checking some of these. We found the one typo already and there may possibly be more. Two more references in Hosea. We won't turn there. Hosea 7.13, Hosea 9.12. So this is consistent with a prophetic office. This is consistent with a prophetic message. Consistent with the role of a prophet who pronounces the, uh, the lacking conditions upon those who should know better. Upon those who should know better. And if anyone in Israel should know better, it would be these cities. Why? Because these were where most of the miracles were done. Point two, he denounced the most accountable cities. He denounced the most accountable cities. From chapter 11 and verse 20, back to Matthew again. He denounced the most accountable. Why are they most accountable? Because they had seen the most. They had been exposed to the most. To whom much is given shall much be required. You and I in the church are the most accountable of any stewards, of any dispensation that have ever walked this planet, we have 66 books of our Bible. No other dispensation has had that much. No other dispensation has had the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide you into the Word of God. No other dispensation has had spiritual gifts. In other words, a body of believers where the Word can be ministered. In the Old Testament, they had a priesthood that was expected to teach the law to the people. But they weren't given a spiritual gift to communicate that Word. They weren't a spiritual body to receive that word. They didn't have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit making these things divinely empowered. So they are the most accountable. 
I want you to keep these uh, degrees in mind because they are relative. They are relative to the human experience. Most accountable. Keep that in mind when we consider more tolerable. That's going to be a relative scale. We deal with God. In most cases, we're dealing with absolutes. When we're approaching it from the human standpoint, we're dealing with relative scales, such as what we have here. Began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. We'll give you the because here in a moment. The, the purpose clause, or the, uh, not the purpose clause, but the, the uh, rationale behind the denouncements, the, the causative aspect, because they did not repent. We'll give you that here under point three. The verb on a deeds, though, is used in a couple different ways. Unbelievers can do this. Um, carnal believers can do this. There's a bad way to do this, and then there's a right way to do this. It's kind of like jealousy. There's a godly jealousy, and then there's the carnal jealousy, or anger. There's the righteous indignation, then there's just the carnal anger, right? Um, as with a lot of things where there's two sides to it, it, it comes down to the spiritual status. Are you in fellowship or out of fellowship? Are you, is your motivation the glory of God the Father and the, or the pleasure of God the Father and the glory of Jesus Christ? Then you can exercise this in the proper way. If you're carnal or out of fellowship or your motivation's wrong, then what you're doing is you're just simply reviling or you're mocking. But when the motivation is correct, then it is a reproach. You say, well, what's the difference between mocking and reproaching? The spiritual attitude behind it. The spiritual attitude behind it. You can think of this as a sanctified... Um, you think about... A reproach is sanctified mocking. It's not really a matter for mocking, but you are highlighting something that is absolutely ludicrous. It is something for reproach. And in a divine sense, it comes. It, we tend to render it more as a, as a reprimand. See, but I, I think we fall short when we use different English words when it's translating the same Greek word. That the concept is the same, it's just the, the mental attitude behind it that, that communicates the activity. All right, on a deedzo, O-N-E-I-D-I-Z-O, on a deedzo, we got nine uses. You got also a noun form on a deedsmas with five uses. You can jot those down. Um, usually the, the, the ones you see there in the Gospels uh, happened when Christ was hanging on the cross and they reviled him. They mocked him. They said, ha, you said you were the son of God. Well, come on down off that cross. then." And it was that mocking that took place. They reviled him. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are you when you are reviled. So don't, don't think it's weird that, that we will experience it. Why? Because the world hates him. And who are we? We're in him. So we become the object of those uh, revilings, the mockings, the scorn. So it's used nine times. Matthew 5.11, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 11.20, that's our verse right here. Matthew 27.44, when he's hanging on the cross. Uh, Mark 15.32 and Mark 16.14. Those are parallels to Matthew's account of the crucifixion. And then Luke 6.22. Romans 15.3. There's um, Paul's first use there in Romans. Forgetting offhand which one that was. 15.3. Ah, 
Even Christ did not please himself. This is where we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. We're all here to edify one another. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. There's where you have the noun and the verb in the same verse. Are we willing to bear that? Are we willing to endure that? James 1, 5. Ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. When you go to God the Father in prayer and you say, This is, Father, this is my need, there will be no reproach when He provides for that need. He will not look at you and say, Well, you big dummy. I gave you that last week. What do you need it again for? There's none of that. You've gone to the proper provision for your, for your need. And so answer to prayer never comes with a reproach. And then 1 Peter 4.14. The noun form, we've already mentioned the Romans 15.3 where both the noun and the verb occur there. 1 Timothy 3.7. Qualification for the pastor. He must be above reproach. Now that's not to say that the pastor will never be slandered or that the pastor will never be uh, ridiculed or the pastor will never be attacked. Because he will be. But just make sure that when he is slandered, it's slandered for... Something that he didn't do. <laughs> you know, that it's a false reproach, that it's a false accusation and so forth. See, because if it's legitimate, if he himself has engaged in the behavior that would be subject to a reproach, then that would be a matter that would be then examined as an issue of qualifications. Has that pastor then uh, disqualified himself from the office of overseer by virtue of the behavior that he engaged in. And at what point of time, then, can that pastor be restored to the office of overseer if, in fact, the behavior has been such that the uh, reproach is uh, is no longer the reproach that it had been. Does that make sense? In other words, if there was an aspect for reproach, but it was years ago, and then behavior in the meantime has demonstrated the character traits consistent with that text in, in uh, 1, Peter 3, or 1 Timothy 3, well then, that diminishes the reproach, doesn't it? Because that was then, this is now, these are now the character traits, this is now the example that's being set. So at what point then does a congregation say that this pastor can be once again entrusted with that office of overseer? All right? And congregations make different determinations at different times in different ways. Some folks would never make that decision. They would view that as once and you're done. For the rest of your life, you will never again be entrusted with that office. And depending on what the deed was, that may be reality. Yeah, it may be. See. That's reproach in First Timothy three seven. Hebrews ten thirty three, three uses in Hebrews. Ten thirty three, eleven twenty six, and thirteen thirteen. Three uses there in Hebrews. Let's grab those and then quickly move on. I didn't want to get caught in this introductory vocabulary stuff, but Basically, I wanted to get the references out there and leave it with you to pursue on your own basis. At least this will give us a sense for how serious this rebuke was. 
Um, Remember the four were days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. So the reproach is tied with tribulation there, partly by becoming a sharer with those who were so treated. Why, why should we expect any different? That's how the Lord was treated. That's how we're going to be treated. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then finally, 13.13, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. So he's reproaching these cities. He is reproaching these cities. There is something legitimate. There is legitimate criticism that needs to be levied against these cities. Specifically, they have not repented. Point three, these cities were subject to reproach. Because they did not repent. Matthew 11 and verse 20. Now, this may be an issue. There are believers who don't like this verse. I don't care if you like it or not, just read it. It's in the Bible and we've got to look at it. These cities were subject to reproach. Why? The... Explanation that's given for the verb. The verb is reproach. The verb we've already showed you was on a deed so. Jesus was the subject of the verb. These cities were the object of the verb. Jesus was doing the rebuking. These cities were receiving the rebuke. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. The phrase, Hati u metanoison. I didn't get my clicker working this morning, so let me... Should have got my clicker working. This phrase here, Hati U Metanaisan. I have much better underlines than Warren. Warren tried to underline some things. But Warren was using the PowerPoint underliner, which is sadly inferior. This is the gyro tools underliner. This phrase here is an explanation. This phrase here gives us the either a purpose clause or a reason. And so it's not left in the opinion of a pastor why these cities were getting rebuked. It's not left in the opinion of a theologian why these cities were getting rebuked. It's explained for us in the text why these cities were getting rebuked. Jesus did it. They were the objects. And this is why. Hati u metanaeson. Because they did not repent. It is an aorist active indicative. Aorist, in this sense, punctiliar, being mainly timeless. We don't view it as a past tense per se, but you can think of it as a past tense because it precedes the event of the rebuke itself. They did not or they would not repent. You can either do it with a did not or a would not. The verb metanaeo, to change one's mind or to repent. In other words, in the past, the Lord's been in the ministry for two years now. Two and a half years now. Well, let's call it two years. 
And he's most of that time been in Galilee. And for much of that time he's been based in Capernaum. Or he's had travels out of Capernaum as a, as a hub. And so Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these cities have seen more than Nazareth or Nain or any of these other cities. They've seen more. More works of power. And the work of power, the dunamis, the sign, should have prompted a repentance to where they would be humbled, they would have a change of thinking, they would listen to the message. And it just wasn't happening. See, by modern American standards, Jesus is a failure. Because they're not listening to his message. He's, he's ministering the word and he's not getting the response. So the reason why they did not repent, metanoeo, to change one's mind or to repent. All right. Now this has the danger of leading us into a, uh, I'm going to spill this. So before I do, I'm going to put it somewhere else. Pardon me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm terrified that Elmo's going to take a bath here. All right. Elmo's not a Baptist. I don't want to baptize Elmo with a cup of water this morning. There we go. All right. They did not repent. Now, this has a danger for us. This is Elmo. You didn't know that? Sorry. He has a name. It says so right there. Elmo. We, we run into an issue here, we're going to spend most of this morning and next week dealing with it, is uh, under, under uh, Calvinism and other, other theories and so forth, there will be people that say that they can't repent. No one can. No one can turn to God. No one can repent. Okay, We're going to have to deal with that. Because this verse here says they could have. In fact, this passage says Sodom could have. That says a lot. <laughs> the whole point of this is that Sodom could have repented. And if Sodom could have repented, anybody could have repented. All right? So we're going to deal with this. And hopefully, we're going to approach it in a way I've never approached it before. We're going to approach it linguistically. We're going to approach it the way the text develops it. The text develops it as an if-then statement. If would have. Okay? And that's the language we're going to focus on. Because the language of if and would have, I think, unlocks a lot of answers. So we'll deal with this as well. Now, this is uh, not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of statement recorded in the Word of God that the rebuke was given. Why? Because they did not repent. Therefore, they were subject to a rebuke. The... Um, Yeah, there's, there's a ton of vocabulary on, on repentance, on metanoia, if you want. Uh, I didn't put it in the notes or anything. It's not sorrow. It's not emotionalism. It's not feeling sorry for what you've done. Uh, meta is a change, and noose is thinking, so you've changed your thinking. That's what repentance is, is a change of thinking. That this had been your thinking pattern. It has changed now to this thinking pattern. There might be some emotions attached to it. There might be some sorrow. You might have some regrets. Uh, but those are different vocabulary words, metamelamai and other terms. Metanoeo has no emotional connotation to it. It is an intellectual change of thinking that uh, obviously has a heart component, a soul component behind the mind. 
uh, but we'll examine that here as well. Now, why? And why these three? Point four. Chorazin. You ever heard of Chorazin? Why is it we're uh, 100 and whatever lessons into the life of Christ and we've never heard of Chorazin before? <laughs> because there are many other things which Jesus did, and if they were all to be written, the whole world could not contain the books. He evidently ministered in Chorazin. We know what Bethsaida is. Bethsaida was the village of uh, Philip and Andrew. And, and uh, he, he takes a couple of trips there to Bethsaida. Um, but Chorazin, this is the first we've heard of it. We don't know a whole lot about Chorazin other than where it is. They're all on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. They're all right close together. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. They're all close together. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and especially Capernaum. When you look at these three cities, these two are, uh, they're bad. Because <laughs> they've seen a lot. They're related to Tyre and Sidon. Because they were bad. But Capernaum is the pinnacle. And it's correlated to, to uh, Sodom. So Chorazin and Bethsaida, they saw a lot of what the Lord did. They heard a lot of the Lord's messages. But Capernaum stands even head and shoulders above them. Capernaum was subject to the greatest reproach. Why? Because they had witnessed the greatest testimony. They had witnessed the greatest testimony. Remember, the purpose for the miracle is a testimony. What's happening here is God is revealing. They've got access to the same Old Testament everybody else has. But what they have more than what anybody else has are the testimonies, the miraculous signs that were exhibited. The miraculous signs that were exhibited. Uh, they're mentioned in verse two, uh, 20 called, called miracles. It's, it's, dunam, it's the plural of dunamis. It's, it's the works of power. Most of his miracles were done. See, the ones we know about because they've been recorded in Scripture, but ones we don't know about. The majority of them were done in these cities. And again, the word miracles in verse 21 are works of power. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented. Now, there weren't miracles done in Tyre and Sidon. But if they had been done, if the very same miracles had been done there that were done here, those cities would have repented. Those Gentile cities, those Canaanite cities would have repented. Likewise, um, miracles in verse 23 that had been done in Capernaum. Those miracles would have been sufficient to bring about Sodom's repentance. We'll detail this as well. But they had the greatest witness. They witnessed the greatest testimony. They had the greatest witness. And let's keep that in mind because in our dispensation, we've received the greatest witness. We've got something greater than all the miracles on earth. We've got the, the mind of Christ, the complete canon of Scripture. We have the greatest. That's why when we read uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, to whom much is given shall much be required, it gets very convicting for a church-age believer. Because what do we have? Everything. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. So correlate that to whom much is given. How about to whom everything is given? Everything shall be required. Because all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So if you've been given much, you're accountable for much. What if you've been given everything? 
To whom everything is given, everything shall be required. Comes back to, to accountability. Comes back to judgment. Why is the rope so short for God's people? And it seems so long. Why the wicked seem to get away with a whole bunch? Of course, their father rewards them for the things they do. But our father disciplines us for the things we do because our father loves us. That's why these things happen the way they do. Now, point five: the unrepentant. Of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we, we, I didn't say this yet, but he's talking about people in these cities. You know, the city, the buildings and the land, the, the city doesn't stand for Judgment Day. It's the people of those cities. Okay, we understand that. It's called metonymy. When, he, when he's rebuking Tyre, he's not talking about buildings and real estate. He's talking about people who lived in Tyre. Talking about unbelievers, unrepentant. Okay, the unrepentant of Tyre and Sidon. They're in hell today. They will be resurrected in Revelation chapter twenty. They will stand before the great white throne. The unrepentant of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom will bear reproach in the day of judgment. See, the reproach that these cities are getting now is simply verbal and they have an opportunity to reply and respond and be humbled by it and have it and still they can have a change of thinking. Until they're destroyed, they can have a change of thinking. For Tyre and Sidon, there's no more opportunity. They're in hell today. They will stand at the great white throne. They will be reproved. They will be rebuked. They will be judged. They will be cast into the lake of fire. There's no purgatory. They don't get a second shot at it. They don't have a chance to, you know, work their way out of hell. They will bear reproach in the day of judgment, but to a lesser degree than the unrepentant of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. To a lesser degree. It says it will be more tolerable. The unrepentant of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Try to imagine an unbeliever who lived in Capernaum. And he dies and he goes to hell. And he's in Revelation chapter 20 when death and Hades are delivered up and, and the great and the small stand before the great white throne. And here's an unbeliever from Capernaum. And he's standing next to an unbeliever from Sodom or Tyre or Sidon or whatever. Now they're both unbelievers. They both rejected the revelation of God. They both rejected the gospel. We would use today's vocabulary. They rejected salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the one from Capernaum actually saw Jesus Christ. Actually saw the miracles. Actually had that opportunity face to face in the flesh witnessing the miracles. And rejected it. Can you imagine? It's described, it's, it's hard for us to imagine. This is why I prayed at the beginning of the hour. We're finite beings. And we're dealing with proportions of scale that we may not necessarily understand. At least I don't. Maybe you're 
clearer on this than I am, but I, I can't imagine degrees of hell. I can't imagine degrees of toleration in the lake of fire for all eternity, but Scripture describes them. Ezekiel got to tour Sheol. He got to see the Assyrians at the very bottom of the lowest layer of hell. And then other layers above that, and the deeper it got, the more miserable they were. They were all miserable, don't get me wrong. No one's in hell having fun. But the layers of, of wrath and the layers of torment and the layers of, of, uh, of judgment were by degrees. And even if I can't comprehend it, I've got to at least accept it, that that's what the Scripture is describing. And the Scripture is describing that these guys, the ones that Jesus Christ is speaking to, are going to be worse than even Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. When they stand in their resurrection, the resurrection of judgment, the resurrection of death, and are then cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, the second death. Vocabulary-wise, anektos is an adjective that means to, to bear or to endure, it's never used as a simple adjective. It's always used as the, comp- the uh, comparative adjective, anektoron. So this is what you'll find in your dictionary, but you never find it in the Bible because you have the comparative form. It'd be like tall and taller, right? Fat and fatter. I wasn't looking at anybody, was I? Um, old and older, Okay. When you put this otteron ending right here, you just put the er ending on your adjective. So rather than anektos, it's anektoteron. Rather than bearable, it's more bearable. More bearable. And the five times that anektos appears, it's all five times is anektoteron. It's more bearable. And all five times is in Matthew or Luke. It's in gospel context applied to Sodom, applied to a comparison with Old Testament judgment. Matthew 10:15 we spotted it in the chapter prior to this one. It's used here in chapter 11 verses 22 and 24. It's used over in Luke 10. Now Luke 10 is not a parallel event, but the content of the message is contained there. So I was talking about at the opening of this message. Not a parallel event, but it is parallel content. Because he gave this woe message a number of different times on a number of different events. Here he's giving the event message during the Galilean ministry. He will also give the same woe message after the Galilean ministry, during the last Judean ministry, after he sends out the 70. You say, who are the 70? We'll get there. 70 witnesses that he sends out two by two. Recorded for us in Luke chapter 10. And on that event, he says in verse 12 and in verse 14, again, messages of woe. It will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for your city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, there's Tyre and Sidon there. And uh, Capernaum, likewise. It's, uh, it's, this, it's identical content. It's the same message, but it's a different episode, different event where he's delivering this message. It'd be like, I'm, I'm teaching this message here today, and then I take this message to Sweeney or somewhere else. I deliver the same message in a different setting, in a different event. And so there's more tolerable in verse 12 and verse 14. More tolerable. How do you tolerate hell? <laughs> well, you don't. No one does. But these guys will do so more 
than those guys. Is that making sense? It's a degree we may not understand, but it's a degree nonetheless. It's a degree nonetheless. Now, here's where it comes down to omniscience, and here's where I'll set the table and we'll pick up next week. The omniscient foreknowledge of God. Remember, foreknowledge, is, all that is is omniscience related to the future. Omniscience, God knows everything. Past, present, future. God's outside of time. The omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all realities and unrealities. In other words, everything that is, that's reality. That's reality. What is not, well, that's an unreality. What is, is, and what's not, is not. And God knows it all. God knows it all. See, for example, if you would have uh, been hit by a train on your way to church this morning, you wouldn't be sitting here right now. So the reality is you're sitting here right now. The unreality is that your car was hit by a train and uh, your uh, vehicle is now in a smashed up little ball and your body is in an even smaller smashed up little ball and your soul has departed and is now present with the Lord. All right? Now, that's unreality. That didn't happen this morning. How do I know that didn't happen this morning? Because I'm looking at you. Right here, right now, the reality is here you are. But where would you be if you'd gotten hit by a train on your drive over? Okay? Yeah. This is these are the these are the, the, the dimensions of, of the what ifs. The what would you be? Where would you be? Alright? You know, what if I would have been successful at canceling my orders to Fort Hood in 1990? What if I would have been successful in getting assigned to a uh, to a, uh, uh, a nuclear chemical site in California uh, in 1990? What if I'd never come to Texas? Well, I would not have met Sharon. I would not have. I mean, who knows all the what-nots, see. Now, a word of caution, <laughs> and I'll close with this because I'm out of time. Um, one of the most unproductive things a, a human being can do is sit around and pout and wonder about all the what-ifs. Sit there and cry and boo-hoo and say, oh, I should have done this, and why didn't I do that, and oh, woe is me. Okay? Because you can't go back and change any stupid decision you made in the past. You can learn from it and make smarter decisions today and in the future. Okay? We can't, for us to dwell on the what-ifs uh, for the, the present alternatives is, is fruitless. We can ponder the future what-ifs if there's still a, a pending decision. I'm thinking about what I might do today and I want to ponder. Well, what would the results be if I do this? Or what would the results be if I do that? So I can ponder two alternative what-ifs yet future, but it's a waste of time for me to ponder the different what-ifs for the present because in order to get to the what-ifs in the present, I had to have done something different in the past. Following all that? Okay. But God knows them all. God knows them all. 
Because God is communicating in this text, he is communicating a what if that would apply to the present based upon a change of something that could have happened in the past. And I'll leave you with this because it's the language of would have and could have. Maybe it's the language of should have. All right. And uh, he says if in verse 21. If. And we know it didn't happen. So we don't get wrapped up in it, but it could have happened. It didn't, but it could have. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have. Now, they didn't, but if they would have, this is what would have been the result. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Likewise, Sodom could have repented could have remained it says in verse 23 if now fortunately in the greek there's different classifications of if and this is the second class condition we know this isn't true if it didn't happen but if it would have happened here's what the results would have been if these miracles occurred in sodom it would have remained to this day that's 2,000 years after the event there's not many cities that last 2,000 years Think about the positive volition that it would have sparked. So we'll come back to this. I want us to consider the what-ifs, because we don't know them, but God knows them all. God knows every single one of the what-ifs. And that would be help for us as we examine the uh, principles of repentance, the principles of accountability. It's going to be a huge help for us. Uh, not only for the on the basis of those cities in verses 20 through 24, but also in the praise to the Father and the decision to reveal things to certain people and the invitation to come. It's vital that we understand what that invitation to come is all about. So, any questions, thoughts? Ideas. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for your grace plan. Thank you for your wisdom. I praise you for your wisdom and your omniscience and your foreknowledge and knowing every outcome. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us. We're studying things that may be beyond uh, humanity to try to fathom. Part of the unfathomable riches of Christ. And yet, you have equipped us to fathom the unfathomable and we thank you for that we ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we depart protection as we travel we thank you and praise you in christ's name amen